Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon. Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison, to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter... Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Thank you, Mark. Well, please keep your Bibles open at page 1058, and you may also like to find the handout that you will have received on the way in. And just as we begin, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, come and be among us this evening. Speak to each of us through your word, the Bible. Show us Jesus Show us ourselves, and may the former transform the latter to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, at this time of year, we've already heard about Christmas. I'm beginning to get pretty excited about Christmas. I love almost everything about it. I love the lights, the decorations. I love filling my Amazon wish list and then pretending everything's a surprise when I open it. I especially look forward to Christmas dinner. I love it. I love it all. But there is one thing at this time of year that I begin to worry about. It is, for me, the one thing that threatens to ruin Christmas. It seems to affect everything, the decorations, the presents, even Christmas dinner itself. 
The thing I hate at Christmas is the glitter. I can't stand glitter. It gets everywhere and it ruins everything. All you need is a little bit spilt on the carpet and you cannot get rid of it. Hoover as much as you like, it's not going anywhere. You get it on your skin and then there's that moment the next day when you're talking with someone and they look at you and go, hang on, hang on, I think you've got a bit of glitter on your face. Glitter gets everywhere. We have a total ban on glitter in our house. I say we, it's actually me that has a total ban on glitter. It's not allowed past the front door. But there is one way that it always seems to sneak past my watchful eye. The postman. People send these Christmas cards. I tear open the seal and pull out the card, only to be struck with an explosion of glitter. It's like receiving a letter bomb. Then there's Christmas dinner itself. I spend months looking forward to it, but then someone's gone and they've got the crackers that are rolled in glitter. So that moment where everyone goes like this, poof, glitter explosions all around the table. Now it's on your hands, it's on the hat, it's in your hair, it gets everywhere. Glitter gets everywhere and it ruins everything. There you go. <laughs> Amen. Um, uh, <laughs> In Luke 22, okay, okay, all right. In Luke 22, we read of another meal that Jesus has spent ages looking forward to. He's been looking forward to sharing it with his disciples, but something has ruined it. Take a look down at chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. But after they had eaten, Jesus' last supper with his disciples quickly went downhill. The disciples squabble and argue, and eventually end up, uh, it ends up in verse 38 at the end there, with Jesus saying, that's enough. That's enough. He pulls the plug. The last supper's ruined. Ruined, in this instance, by pride. Pride gets everywhere, and it ruins everything. Pride is when we have an exalted view of who we are in relation to God and others. An exalted view of who we are. To different degrees, we all suffer with pride. And whenever it shows itself, it ruins our relationships, both with each other and with God. When we exalt ourselves over each other, we look down on others and expect them to look up to us. When we exalt ourselves over God, we think we know better than him and we reject his loving kingship. This is the pervasiveness of pride. Pride gets everywhere and it ruins everything. Luke 22 helps us in two ways. It shows us the nature of our pride and it shows us the way to humility. So let's take a look. The first point on the handout, pride demands recognition. See how pride begins to make an appearance at the Last Supper. Just before our passage, Jesus says that one of his disciples, sitting there at the table with them, would betray him. Take a look at verse 21. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. You can imagine at that point all the disciples whipping their hands off the table and the mood in the room suddenly changing as they begin looking around at each other accusingly. And then in verse 23, it says, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. I think it's Philip. He's always looked a bit dodgy to me. Well, maybe James, he keeps himself quiet. Who knows what he's thinking? 
As the accusations start to fly, the disciples switch to defensive mode, each arguing for their innocence by setting out their credentials. Look down at verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Andrew might have said, don't look at me. Me and my brother, we were some of the first ones that Jesus called. We've been with him longer than the rest of you. We're not going to betray him. And John, I'm one of Jesus' closest disciples. I'm on the inner circle. Me and Jesus, we're like that. It's not going to be me. Sort this out among yourselves, boys. And then Peter, guys, 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 guys. My name literally means the rock. Jesus changed my name to Peter because I'm steady and reliable, but clearly one of you isn't. The disciples get defensive, arguing about who's the greatest, clambering for status. Why? Because of pride. Pride is the basis for a wide variety of behaviors, but one of those is defensiveness. You see, pride means I have an exalted view of myself, and in my heart I demand, I demand that others recognize that, so I get defensive if ever I sense that they don't. So consider your own behavior for a moment. Do you get defensive? Even as I say that, if your immediate reaction is, no, I don't. (laughs) Well, I'll let you think a bit more about that. This is how we see pride making us defensive. Pride might make me hypersensitive to insult. I hear insults where there really aren't insults, or perhaps where there are insults, I take them to heart far more than is reasonable. I'll be deeply resentful of criticism or negative feedback. I can't believe they said that about me. Or here's one, being very quick to feel patronized. I'm awful at this. I'm the youngest of four children, so I spent most of my childhood worrying that people weren't taking me seriously. Christopher, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you mean when I grow up? I'm eight. I am grown up. It's pride. It's just pride. It's how dare you not think of me as highly as I do. That's what's going on here. The disciples get defensive, demanding recognition. Pride demands recognition. But Jesus intervenes to tell them that in his kingdom, the great aren't those who demand recognition, but who humbly serve. Take a look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, literally do-gooders, but you are not to be like that. Normally, those in positions of authority demand recognition, an introduction at special events, a private parking space at work. They expect to be publicly thanked and praised, but don't be like that, says Jesus. Instead, verse 26, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus is telling his disciples that if they want to be great, they need to serve others not wait to be served. But that's just not what we expect the great to do, is it? Jesus makes that point by asking the disciples a seemingly easy question. It's there in verse 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Of course it is. Great people are served by others. Consider important politicians and CEOs. Someone else answers their phone. They have a secretary, maybe several, a personal assistant, a chauffeur to drive them around, a large staff of managers and deputies, a flurry of people waiting on them hand and foot. That's what we expect greatness to look like, isn't it? But then Jesus throws a cat among the pigeons with what he says next. There at the end of verse 27. But I 
am among you as one who serves. Jesus is God right there among his disciples. He is in every way the greatest human being there's ever been, and this is what we find him doing, serving. A few minutes before saying this, Jesus had literally been waiting on them, distributing the bread and wine, symbols of a much greater act of service he would perform the next day as his body is broken and his blood shed on the cross. This, says Jesus, is what true greatness looks like, serving. I am among you as one who serves. A few years ago, I was helping lead on a Christian summer holiday for teenagers, and a couple of days into the week, I was sitting with others having a meal, and as the meal drew to a close and people began leaving tables around the room, I noticed a guy on the other side of the room who I didn't recognize. He was wiping down a table, and so I asked someone, who's that guy? And they said, oh, um, he's leading, but he's just a couple of days late arriving. He's been held up with a case at work. I said, a case? And they said, oh, yeah, he's a high court judge. And I was just blown away. This guy, this high court judge, had decided to take some annual leave uh, to arrive unannounced, just slip in and start wiping down tables. Amazing. No wig or gown or gavel, just a dishcloth and a bottle of antibacterial spray. I think he had understood something of what Jesus is getting at here. This is what it means to be great, not to proudly demand recognition, but to humbly serve. To be concerned for the needs of others, not yourself. As someone once put it, the hero in Christ's army is not the person who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. It is the person who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. It is the person who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, with a hand to help all, and a heart to feel for all. Another way we see our pride is through perfectionism. If you find yourself being over-attentive to detail or highly self-critical, you're probably straining to make people see you as highly as you see yourself. You're determined people see how well you can do. You're demanding recognition for all that you are. But Jesus says in the next few verses, all that you are, you've received. Take a look down at verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Jesus is very kind to his disciples here, isn't he? Very kind. He recognizes that they've stuck by him, even though he knows that in just a few hours, they're going to abandon him when he needs them most. But nonetheless, here he focuses on the good. You've stood by me in my trials. And so he continues, verse 29, I confer on you, that is, I give you a kingdom, just as my father gave one to me. Jesus' point is this, the father has given me a kingdom, that is, he's given me authority, and I'm giving you authority too. But remember, it's delegated. The disciples would go on to be the leaders in the church, And Jesus' message to them here is that the authority they'll have isn't theirs. It's delegated, handed down from God the Father. Handed down because God's higher than you. Handed down because, verse 30, even though they'll one day sit on thrones in the new creation, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, the table they'll eat and drink from is, Jesus says, 
my table. And the kingdom they'll serve in is my kingdom. All that the disciples are, all their authority, they've received. And the same is true of you and me. All of your gifts and talents, all of your advantages and opportunities in life, all of your money and career or looks or friendships or any authority you hold and all the things you take, or take pride in, you've received. They've been handed down from above and so the glory belongs not to us but to the one who gives them. Pride demands recognition for all that I am but all that I am I've received. It's not mine and neither's the glory that goes with it. Don't demand recognition, says Jesus, but humbly serve as those who know that all you are, you've received. The second point on the handout, as as well as demanding recognition, pride denies weakness. Simon Peter was probably a key part of the argument that has just happened, because Jesus now singles him out. Look down at verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. When you sift wheat, you separate out the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. And Satan has asked Jesus to let him test the disciples. The you in verse 31 is plural. It refers to all of the disciples. Satan wants to test their faith. But Jesus says in verse 32, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter hears only the words, when you have turned back, and objects to the suggestion that he's going to abandon Jesus in the first place. Do you see what he says in verse 33? Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. You've got it wrong, Jesus. I'm not going to turn away anywhere. Satan can sift us all he likes, but I'm ready. I won't turn away. The others might, but I won't. I'm better than that. I'm better than them. Bring it on, Satan. I'm ready. And so Peter, in pride, denies weakness. Pride denies weakness. Someone's written about this. We often see this kind of presumption in a naturally gifted athlete who finds it hard to listen to coaching advice because he feels no need. Sadly, the sidelines are strewn with has-beens who refuse to learn from the wisdom of others. Perceived natural strength can be a disadvantage, especially in spiritual matters. And so it was with Peter, because pride, as we know, comes before a fall. Verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Peter so underestimates his weakness that he'll have denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crows that very same day. Peter underestimates his weakness when put under pressure. We've seen that this pressure is going to come from Satan. And from verse 35, we see that it's also going to come from people. Take a look at verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. In the past, the disciples could depend on people's goodwill towards them. But now, verse 36, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Jesus doesn't literally want the disciples to buy swords. He wants them to understand that they're going to face hostility now. And the cause of this new hostility towards the disciples is there in verse 37. 
Jesus said, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus knows he's about to be tried and condemned and nailed on a cross like a criminal, a transgressor. And when that happens, being associated with Jesus won't win the disciples the hospitality of the people. It will put them in terrible danger. They clearly don't understand Jesus' point, do they? Because in verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus replied, That is enough. Just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying, oh yeah, well, three swords would have been good, but two, yeah, I suppose that's enough. He's saying, enough of this nonsense, enough of this talk. If you want confirmation of that, it's over in verse 51, when a few hours later, one of the disciples tries to defend Jesus with a sword, and Jesus says, no more of this. Jesus doesn't want his disciples using swords. He wants them to understand that the honeymoon is over. Things are about to get nasty. And they shouldn't underestimate their weakness under pressure. But pride denies weakness, and so Peter says, Lord, I'm ready. This is another way we can see pride in ourselves. We deny weakness. We deny our weakness when we live as though we're ready, ready for whatever pressures we'll face as Christians from Satan and from others. If you want to know what that looks like, it looks like this. Consistently not doing your quiet time because you think you're ready to face the day. It looks like not praying for yourself or not asking others to pray for you when they ask because you don't think you need God's help. It looks like not removing temptations from your way because you think you'll be strong enough to resist them. Friends, self-sufficiency is a symptom of pride. When we, when we won't think we're proud, of course, just like Peter, we'll think that we've got a right assessment of ourselves. I am ready. But listen to this quote. There is no surer proof of pride than a belief that you're sufficiently humble. If you're a Christian here tonight, you and I need to recognize our weakness in the face of pressure. Satan salivates at the thought of bringing you down. He is a restless, invisible, and experienced enemy. We shouldn't think that we can resist him without God's help. But neither should we be terrified of him because, verse 31, Satan had to ask. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Satan had to ask because God has him on a leash. He's dangerous, yes, but he's bound. And what's more, the one who in verse 32 said, I have prayed for you, Simon. He prays for us too. That night, Simon Peter's faith faltered, but it didn't ultimately fail. He did turn back, not because he was strong, but because he was sustained by the prayers of one who is. So are you and I. So are you and I. Jesus prays for us and will sustain us, but we shouldn't be complacent about our weakness. Pride denies weakness, and that's why it always comes before a fall, as it did for Peter that night, quite spectacularly. But when he did turn back, after betraying Jesus, he turned back humbler now, having come to see his weakness. And so, funnily enough, he turned back stronger than before, and able to strengthen others. 
Perhaps you noticed that at the end of verse 32. Jesus said to Peter, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It is those who have come to see their weakness and who have been humbled by the experience that are able to strengthen others in the fight. Not those who pretend to be strong, but those who know they're weak. And I think this is a real challenge for us as a church. In our small groups, in our friendships, in our conversations over coffee afterwards, we should be willing to be honest with each other about our weakness, our failures, past and present. If we're not, if we're never open with others about our struggles and failures, is that not because of our pride? Of course there are appropriate levels of openness, I get that, but more often than not, is it not because of our pride? Being honest with each other and making ourselves vulnerable is an important part of how we can serve and strengthen each other in the Christian life. And serving is greatness in God's kingdom. Let me challenge you if you're a believer here this evening. Will you serve your brothers and sisters, strengthening them by admitting your weakness? Abandoning your pride and admitting your weakness. Pride demands recognition. Pride denies weakness. Pride gets everywhere and it ruins everything. Pride is in my heart and it's in yours and it will ruin us if we let it. Whoever you are here this evening, I want to say to you, 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 your options are these. Ruin your pride or watch it ruin you. So where do we look to deal with our pride? As the disciples sat gathered around that table at the Last Supper, arguing about who was the greatest, all they needed to do was look at the table. What was on the table? What was on the table? A plate with some leftover bread and a cup with the dregs of wine. Bread and wine of which Jesus had just said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you. Looking up at them from the table were the symbols of Jesus' imminent death on the cross. We try to pretend we're strong and self-sufficient, but the cross tells us that, quite emphatically that we're weak and need a rescue. We spend so much energy trying to persuade each other that we're worth something. When all along, Jesus' death on the cross tells us that to him, we're worth everything. The extent to which we understand the cross is the extent to which we will be liberated from the tyranny of pride because it tells us we are weak but we don't need to pretend otherwise because we're loved deeply nonetheless. In a few minutes, we're going to come up and receive bread and wine from the Lord's table. We cannot look at that table and understand what Jesus did on the cross and still wonder what we're worth and still deny our weakness. The pastor theologian John Stott wrote this, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. That's why the home of the humble is at the foot of the cross.
Live your life there, under the shadow of that cross, and over time, it will ruin your pride. I wish I could tell you more about what it feels like to be free from pride, and I would if only I'd made more progress in it myself. But I think I can imagine the freedom of not having to pretend to be more than I am, the liberty of being honest about my weakness because I'm secure in the unconditional love of the one who matters most. I've met people who I think are really humble, a number in this church family, and I envy you. If you know your pride here this evening, envy those people too. I think it's a righteous kind of envy. And let's join such people by making our home at the foot of the cross, by thinking much of Jesus' suffering on the cross, our sin which sent him there, and the love that took away our sin and guilt. It is from that place of weakness that we will be able to strengthen others. And rather than rule as those who think they're better, we'll serve as those who know they're weak. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, what I'm about to say to you, I say in love, you need to ruin your pride. You need to stop playing God in your life and ask the real God for forgiveness for all the years you've been doing so. If you think you can run your life better than God can, if you think you're self-sufficient, you're suffering from pride. Pride always comes before a fall, but it doesn't have to be yours When Jesus willingly went to the cross, he took the fall for all our pride. He was punished so you and I could walk free, and he wants to take the fall for you. Let him. Ask him to. Humble yourself before him, asking for forgiveness, and he will raise you up with a loving smile. I know a man who a few years ago sat right up there on the balcony in the middle, And as he watched people coming up to receive the bread and wine, he gave his life to Jesus. As people came and knelt in humility and held out empty hands to receive something they didn't have, he was convinced that he needed to do the same. He knew he needed to receive forgiveness for all his sin and pride through the death of Jesus on the cross. If you know that tonight and want to give your life to Jesus, then join us by coming up and receiving the bread and wine. I just ask this, if you do that tonight, please let one of us know that you've made that step so that we may strengthen you as those who ourselves too are learning of our weakness. I'm going to invite the band up, and just as they prepare, uh, let me lead us in a final prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, all we are we've received. Forgive us for thinking too highly of ourselves. Lead us to the foot of the cross and there ruin our pride. And make us more like Jesus who came among us as one who serves. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.